you're faced with this spectacle, which is largely an advertisement for a country. If you watch any of these matches, there's these ads, there's these animations trying to make it seem like a great place to be. They've asked the world to pay attention to them. And so therefore, I think they're open to criticism. Welcome to the Lost Debate, a show for Political Eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, how was Thanksgiving? It was nice. I was out in LA with my mom. Uh, no complaints. Had my my vegetarian Thanksgiving. How was yours? Is it always with your mom, not dead? It flips back and forth, but um, this year just landed that way. But you did, before Thanksgiving, take a bit of a road trip upstate. I did. I saw that in the yeah. New York Post. Yeah. I <laughs> what was the headline? It said, DNA reveals you're basically your found relatives that or psychics who spoke to the dead? Yeah, so I have no jurisdiction over the like headline or anything. And I also didn't really want to write about my own family so much Stop as this little community. Stop apologizing for the story. Tell us, tell but, us what happened. Um, I, yeah, a while ago I did a DNA test with my dad and um, I got the results back and I realized there are no schlots in any of his DNA matches and something's a little off. And um, sure enough, I applied to New York State. There were adoption records for him. No one had ever told him. He was 80 at the time. And then the next wrinkle of the story was that his birth family were like both his mother, his father's grandparents, all this like part of this psychic religion in upstate New York. And which part of upstate are we talking um, about? So they were from Rochester, but we went to this little community in Buffalo, that they, or outside of Buffalo this that they used to go to. makes you a Bills fan uh -huh. by blood lineage. Um, sure. Why not? <laughs> um, but we went up to this little psychic community where everyone that lives inside the gates has to be a registered medium or like a member of the church. And so. And does your bloodline mean that you're welcome there now? I was very welcomed. Everyone was very nice to me. Um, they, there's claims that it's a genetic talent. I have not really seen that through personally, but. Um, could be very you know, useful for this podcast. It could be. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so far, and maybe you have to tap into it. Maybe maybe being up in Lilydale helped, but. Your dad seems like such a great sport over this whole thing. I saw his oh, photo yeah. in the New York he's, Post. He's was he into excited it. about that? He, yeah, he's kind of like turns into a ham about it. At yeah. first he was like, no, I'm not adopted. <laughs> Definitely not. But then like it turned out there are all these wrinkles and twists and turns and crazy scandals in his story. And now. He he's like you should write a book about it. Why not? This is why so. I don't release my DNA data. I'm worried that I have relatives that my dad yeah. hasn't told me about. Probably yeah. everyone. I think everyone, if you dig hard enough, has something they'd rather not have known. But for me, I thought this was cool. It was kind oh of fun. God. Well, that's pretty so, cool. We should yeah. you know we'll put it in the show notes. It's sure. a really cool story. I thought the story was really respectful, also of the community. And wow, what a, your dad is such a character. <laughs> but we've got a lot to talk about today. But before we get there, we've got a Chris Stewart episode, the Chris Stewart show that's going to be coming out tonight. We talk about corruption in schools, the purpose of schools, some of the inside baseball debates that happen in the education world. You can find that uh, at the Chris Stewart show, wherever you get podcasts. We also have a voicemail, 321-200-0570, 321-200-0570. We'll be getting a ton of voicemails. But we have a, many stories to talk about today, Ricky. We're going to talk about Taylor Swift and how the frenzy around her latest ticket release caused a, a lot of concern over Ticketmaster and whether they have a monopoly. There's also new data that came out that shows a staggering isolation crisis in America. We're going to talk about whether isolation equals loneliness. We're going to dig into that data. We also have tons of voicemails from over the break from our fans, including a lot of fans of Joe Garvey, our researcher. A lot of people concerned about his dating life, so we're going to bring him back on and just get an update <laughs> on where things stand there. But first, let's talk about the biggest tournament in sports, the World Cup. 
You've seen fierce accusations of corruption against FIFA for picking this year's host country, Qatar. A nation which is smaller than the state of Connecticut, where they're not fit for purpose in any way, shape or form. The build-up to the event has been blighted by safety concerns. Homosexuality is illegal here. Women's rights and freedom of expression are in the spotlight. Two, four, six, eight. Qatar must legislate. We recognise from day one from before we bid to host the World Cup, that things had to change. This was not something that dawned upon us as a result of the World Cup. There's a lot of attention on the World Cup games because Qatar is a country with a questionable human rights record, is a dictatorship, but also in many ways an ally of the United States. And there have been all sorts of debates going from whether they should have gotten the World Cup in the first place, a lot of allegations that seem pretty credible that there was huge corruption involved there, mm -hmm. uh, allegations that they have human rights uh, abuses of their own workers who come and construct these stadiums and participate in a system that we'll talk through that seems rather coercive with very unsafe conditions. And then a whole host of other issues that are on display involving many, not just the host country, but some of the countries that are descending upon Qatar Going yeah. through this, it was staggering the amount of protests that are happening just in this limited amount of time that people have been down there. Yeah, well, I think it it stretches back to 2010 when they first announced the, that Qatar was going to be hosting the World Cup. And I think that was really the point in time where something could have been changed. And now it's set in stone. But that doesn't mean that you don't have the right still to protest it. But um, as you mentioned, there were tons of allegations of corruption and bribery and um, especially because if you think about what would be a logical city or logical country to host it in, it would be one that you would hope would have at least some fundamental infrastructure, but they right. ended up having to spend $220 billion just to make this happen because they didn't have the stadium, they didn't have any of the surrounding requirements to pull it off, which is 15 times the second most that's ever been spent. Yeah, these numbers are crazy when you're looking yeah. at it. Like it's it's more than Olympics by many orders of magnitude that have ever happened many orders of magnitude more than any other World Cup mm -hmm. before. And this is a country of 3 million people who are only 10% of whom are citizens of that country. The country's mainly made of migrant laborers and expats. It's an autocracy. Mm -hmm. It's a country that had never made the World Cup before. None of it made any sense. It's a country that's so hot that they couldn't hold the World Cup in the summer when they normally hold the World Cup. So they had to move it to this period of time in the winter, yeah. which is in the middle of the European soccer uh, calendar at a time when when most of these players who are in the World Cup, a lot of them are in the European leagues. Yeah. So none of it makes sense. Obviously, huge allegations, which seem very credible. We'll link to a Vox article. We won't go through all the allegations, but it seems common sense that something untoward happened here. And they were awarded around the same time that Russia was awarded the previous World Cup to autocracies. Mm -hmm. At least Russia is a big country with a much larger history of participation in this game period and a larger geopolitical standing. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't necessarily bribe their way to it either, but this one is so suspicious that I think some of that outrage is carried over from 2010 to today and, yeah. and actually has spilled over to some of these other debates around human rights in Qatar. Yeah, definitely. And because this country is so small that it's smaller in size and population than Connecticut, and so they rely on an immigration system which brings in migrant workers called the kafala system, which allows employers to sponsor immigrants to come and work and um, basically ties these migrants' uh, status in the country to their status with their employer. And so it can be 
abused and potentially coercive often. And there are huge disparities in reported worker deaths uh, that were due to the World Cup and constructing the stadium. But um, the numbers refuted, but it certainly could be in the thousands as a result. So the human rights abuses, not only on their like domestic record, but also just regarding hosting this World Cup specifically are immense. Yeah, so there's a debate around that. There's also the debate around all the various protests that are happening within the game. So ahead of Iran's game against England, the Iranian players uh, refused to sing their own national anthem. So they mm-hmm. were they were protesting things happening back home there. At the same time, the English players were taking a knee in support of Black Lives Matter. Uh, so you had that going on. You had uh, Harry Kane, who's the captain of England, were, uh, wanted to wear an armband uh, with the LGBTQ pride rainbow uh, on it, but he backed down. Uh, in the face of sanctions, which the mm-hmm. FIFA had threatened that they would give yellow cards to people wearing that. America redesigned their national crests to replace the red and white stripes with the rainbow colors. This was also banned. Spectators with multicolored hats have been told to take them off. Germans found a way around this, and during the uh, national anthem, they posed with their, or during a photo, they posed with their hands over their mouths uh, as a way to just basically call out the censorship so it seems like a lot of people are kind of pissed generally about where this is sometimes the protests have nothing to do with Qatar but this is a highly political mm-hmm. event at this point and your buddy Piers Morgan recently weighed in here and had some I think sharp words for the people who've been politicizing the World Cup let's listen to what he had to say I find a lot of this sports washing debate uh, laced with rank hypocrisy I mean, in the I wrote a column last week in which I went through all the problems that all the countries in the last 32 have. And, and I mean, for example, eight of the countries in the last 32, that's a quarter of the countries in the World Cup finals, uh, outlaw homosexuality, you know, one in four <laughs> countries. So if you're going to use that as the stick to beat Qatar with, you have to then beat the other seven countries. You don't have a World Cup. So, Ricky, I, I definitely am with him that there's a lot of hypocrisy, but I'm a little worried about a moral relativism here. I think part of the issue is, you know, he, he wrote a piece where he also said, well, the time to debate all of this around Qatar's hosting of this event, which is obviously where a lot of frustrations are coming from, was 2010. But it's like, I'm not like a voting member of FIFA. So as a person who's a casual fan, or even if I was a... a mega fan of soccer that you don't have a power to change anything in 2010 so you're faced with this spectacle which is largely an advertisement for a country if you watch any of these matches there's these ads there's these animations trying to make it seem like a great place to be they've asked the world to pay attention to them and so mm-hmm. it's different you know when he talks about other countries whether it's the united states which i think is a preposterous comparison or other countries that have terrible human rights records they're not the ones who asked to host this global event and invite the world in. And so therefore, I think they're open to criticism. Yeah, I mean, I I think that there's completely a free speech rate for all the athletes and all the people involved to protest this. I think, you know, there's varying degrees of actual fortitude in what these protests really are with people backing down. I mean, the real stance would be to say, like, our team is not going to participate here. Or if you're a sports journalist that's talking about the human rights abuses, but also actively profiting by going and covering it, then, you know, like there is a lot of kind of flatness about some of this protests to me or some of these protests. I also think he's right in the sense that 
um, like participating in sports can bring people together. And this is a World Cup and the world is a really imperfect place. And we all have our relativistic sense of what's moral and right. Of course, there are some objective human rights abuses and that's not to excuse them at all whatsoever. Right. But, you know, carving out this space and this like athletic endeavor for people to actually interact as human beings is i think a healthy thing if we want to have a global society i think it's a healthy thing to invite as many countries and participants in it doesn't mean that they're shielded from criticism i think it's completely valid to criticize them but i do think it is entirely true that if we started to go down the list and say okay well like what sort of human rights abuses are tolerable tolerable to us in order to have someone participate or like should we should we be punishing the athletes who want to participate in a game even though their country is what what like the abuse is really mm-hmm. coming from and you know the iran the the athletes from iran are a perfect example because right now there's horrific protests and and people are being really like stamped out for standing up for basic human rights and the athletes all came and actually protested their own country and so mm-hmm. i think i think it's a lot more complex i think there is a lot of like people feeling morally virtuous as a result of just like posting an Instagram story and this and that. So I do right. think there is a degree of virtue signaling, but the, I mean, it's also a worthy cause and and they invited people in and certainly it's backfired because I don't think any of us would have it been talking about seems, this teeny tiny little country. I think it's safe to say this is not $220 billion well spent. It's yeah. largely invited a lot of criticism. I think yeah. they thought this would be the akin to what happened with China when they hosted the Summer Olympics, which seemed like a unabashed success for them PR wise. Mm. This doesn't feel like that. And I think a lot of these people, because they're talking, he's talking about hypocrisy, but he's got his own hypocrisy. Like we, I was looking at it this morning, and shout out to Joe who looked at some of this stuff for us. You know, Pierce Morgan calls called out Chamath. You know, remember when we talked about Chamath, talking about the Uyghurs many episodes ago. Mm-hmm. Pierce Morgan called Chamath shameful for saying he didn't care about the Uyghurs. So I'm like, wait a minute, like. Chamath is I don't supposed think that's to be entirely re- the same thing, though. Because yeah, but it's he's like actively a, profiting off of it. Like, yeah, but like Pierce Morgan flew to the World Cup, and as you talk about journalists who are covering, well, he, but this, he's saying that it, the hypocrisy is the journalists who are like protesting the event and also profiting off yeah. of it at the same time. But I would say, like, I think there is a difference between actively selling yourself to a country, like the NBA kind of does where yeah. essentially the the agreement is you can't say anything or China's going to pull the plug on you. Right. I think there's a difference between that and saying, oh, maybe f- like you're just kind of virtue signaling right now. Like there's a there's a degree of difference. I think the the equivalent would be to point your finger at FIFA and say, like, well, how disaster. have you profited off of this agreement? Yeah, I do think, though, there the, I do want to stand my ground on the relativism stuff for a second and just say there's I think a lot of kicking up dirt on this stuff. Matt Walsh had a similar comment where he was saying, It's interesting how quickly the respect all cultures stuff goes out the window, isn't it? I mean, say what you want, but this is Qatar. It's their country. It's a non-Western, non-white country. And now you've got white people, white Westerners like Grant Wall, showing up and saying, I don't respect your customs. I don't, I don't respect your, your beliefs. I'm going to do what I want in your country. I'm going to tell you how you should run your country. I'm like, well, if you look at the Daily Wire, they they talk nonstop about China and the terrible things happening in China or what's happening in Iran with women protesting, right? Those women aren't respecting local customs and we're celebrating them. Yeah, I I think what he was pointing to, though, is like the left's general um, assumption that we should respect all cultures, but in this in this instance they're not acting that way which to me i think is a 
good thing and a healthy thing because I think there's like a dissonance between a lot of progressives who want to be respectful to certain minority religions, but then also the a lot of the fundamentalist or like Sharia law implications of something like Islam are very inconvenient to the larger progressive message. So I think that like this is actually a healthy thing that we're actually confronting some I'd of be that with reality you. now. Yeah, I'd be with him if he said you be consistent by your own standard but he goes further and says no you respect the customs so to me that's that is in conflict with the way he looks at other issues that fit the right wing yeah. narratives like you so know, for instance it's I in think... vogue to criticize china it's in vogue to criticize iran and that's a that is acceptable in right wing circles i happen to agree with them on that but i also happen to agree that it's okay to criticize qatar for its record with uh, LGBTQ issues yeah, too. Yeah, absolutely, you know? I completely agree. I think one thing that I felt people could have been a little more lax on is the fact that they didn't want to have alcohol at the stadium. I don't really think that's a huge deal if that's respecting local adds, customs. But just as to why is this the place? Yeah, they no, don't I have agree. Stadiums, but take they it don't up serve with FIFA. Like, seriously, they don't like take gay it up people. with FIFA. You know, it's like there are gay players, there are gay coaches, there are gay fans. It's like at a yeah. certain point where we're like, here are our requirements for hosting a World Cup event. All right, you've got to be tolerant of the people who are coming. Yeah, uh, you, I don't. I don't disagree. You've got to have stadiums. You have to have weather that allows us to hold the event at the time it's historically been held. Yeah, you know, like these are just basic. I don't things. disagree at all, but I also think like what's done is done at this point, and so I'm I appreciate the people who just want to watch it and enjoy it. Yeah, I'm not among them, but but have at it. When we talk about the hypocrisy thing, one thing that is worth mentioning as we move on from this is. There is a massive problem with the way that autocracies have captured our cultural institutions that is way beyond just the World Cup. So if you look at, for example, just the European League, for, exa for example, one uh, Parisian team, which is owned by Qatar, has three of the four highest paid players in the world right now, uh, including, you know, these are mega stars like Neymar and Messi. Right. Manchester City, which is probably the most dominant team over the past decade in European soccer, is owned by the brother of the president of the UAE. The Brooklyn Nets is owned by Joseph Tsai, somebody who has been a full on apologist for China's human rights abuses. There's a you know book by a Wall Street Journal writer that came out recently about how China, for instance, has captured Hollywood. The Nets, before they were owned by Joseph Tsai, were owned by a Russian oligarch. So these autocracies are capturing our cultural institutions, I think in part because we have made decisions as a society that we love capitalism more than we like democracy. And I think that's a bigger problem than any one World Cup event. Yeah, and I think the public scrutiny is an important and healthy thing. I, I support people doing whatever they want to as a result of this being hosted there. I would say, however, that if you wanted to make like a genuine meaningful impact in fighting repressive regimes right now, a place that people should consider supporting is Iran, where there's actually a grassroots movement happening at the moment, rather than Qatar, which is a very tiny country that like just happened upon this World Cup. Right. 15,800 people have been detained as of mid-month and 344 people killed in the protests. And so I'd urge anyone who wants to actually like fight in a meaningful, sustainable way and support something that's a grassroots movement to donate to somewhere like the Center for Human Rights in Iran or United Iran, which both have community activism on the ground. Yeah, the, the U.S. Captain Tyler Adams was asked about this by what I believe is an Iranian journalist and had a very classy response about it. First of all, you say you support the Iranian people, but you're pronouncing our country's name wrong. Our country is named Iran, not Iran. Please, once and for all, let's get this clear. Second of all, um, 
Are you okay to be representing a country that has so much discrimination against black people in its own borders? And uh, we saw the Black Lives Matter movement uh, over the past few years. Are you okay to be representing the US? Meanwhile, there's so much discrimination happening against black people in America. My apologies on uh, the mispronunciation of your country. Um, yeah, that being said, you know, there's discrimination uh, everywhere you go. Um, you know, one thing that I've learned, especially from living abroad in the past years and uh, having to fit in in different cultures and, and kind of assimilate into different cultures, um, is that in the U.S. we're, we're continuing to make progress uh, every single day. You know, growing up for me, I was I, I grew up in a in a white family with an obviously an African American heritage and background as well. So um, I had a little bit of uh, different cultures, and I, I was very very easily able to assimilate in different different cultures. So um, you know, not everyone has that that ease and uh, the ability to do that. And obviously, it takes longer to understand. And through education, I think it's it's super important. Like you just educated me now on the pronunciation of of your country. So. Um, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a process. I think as, as long as you see progress, uh, that's the most important thing. And I think it goes to show that it's not about any one issue. One of the criticisms is like, why are we talking about just gay rights when we should also be talking about this or that? I think they, mm -hmm. that these athletes are pretty complicated. We already talked about Black Lives Matter being an issue, for example, that people highlight. I think some of them are just pissed that they have to endure this. It reminds me a little bit of the, the live PGA situation that we had before. Like some people mm -hmm. just don't care and they'll take whatever money they get and some other people really don't like interacting with these countries if you follow uh, formula one there there have been similar controversies around lewis, lewis hamilton because there's you know abu, abu dhabi grand prix and others that you know sometimes these athletes are like all right i'm especially the world cup where you for every four years you you have only so many windows some of these guys only get to play in one their entire career so this may be it sometimes a country only gets one right we we're talking about the host country has never even got had the been to a world cup before so walking away exacts a tremendous cost yeah and it's not just sports it's also in our university system which i think is um a really important thing to point to or even like my high school one of our major buildings was um funded by saudi arabian money and so yeah. i think it's important to realize that a lot of our cultural institutions in our kitchen right now there's a joseph Sai leadership program mug that i got because i'm a i'm, I'm pretty a mentor sure he to went to program. my high school i yeah. keep saying that and i keep yeah. meaning to google it i'm, I'm gonna almost get kicked positive. out of that program if anybody's <laughs> listening from yale but I, I, yeah I'm, I'm i myself am a mentor for some program he funded at my own law school like yeah. this stuff is everywhere well let's talk about Ticketmaster, ricky i recently went to a jets game against the bills and i had to buy three separate sets of tickets for my family because i had to bring eight people there and ticket my tickets disappeared on the app and i could not find them i spent four hours the morning of the game trying to get my tickets back and i wound up working it out on my own but i could not get a ticket master representative on the phone despite the fact that i had racked up hundreds of dollars of fees to this company and very shortly after that there was a swift insurrection tell yeah. us about what happened here well so um this happened while we were on break but taylor swift announced her tour called the eras which had 50 shows um there were reports of brides changing their wedding dates just to get to <laughs> the shows um people registered in advance for pre-sales uh 3.5 million people wanted to and 1.5 million people were given access and then as soon as they opened up this pre-sale system bots and unregistered fans flooded the website they had three 3.5 billion system requests for uh, tickets, which I mean, I'm sure that a lot of those are not actual human beings because people want to like create bots to buy and then resell for a profit. 
And so the website crashed. There were ridiculously long, like hours long waits during the pre-sale. And Ticketmaster pointed to a historically unprecedented demand, which it does seem legitimate because you have the combination of probably more sophisticated bots than ever and one of the most popular artists of all time at the at the same time. But the chairman of Ticketmaster blamed the fans and said mm. it was, quote, a function of the massive demand Taylor Swift has, which doesn't really seem totally fair. Um, and then they canceled their general sale. So this was supposed to just be the pre-sale and then the general public would have access. And so basically nobody got what they wanted except for very few fans and a lot of bots um, and the pub general public didn't get a chance. And now there are resale tickets that are going for as much as $45,000 to see her in Philly, which is insane. insane. Well, I think the background here is that Ticketmaster controls 70% of the market for ticketing and live events. And it's just a monopoly at this point. And it looks like there's a bipartisan consensus that which we'll get to that this is a monopoly. The Obama administration had an opportunity to kill a merger between Ticketmaster and Live Nation, which was the yeah. biggest sort of live events company at the time. But they allowed it to go through but with some stipulations, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they had a consent decree. And one of the major requirements is that they wouldn't basically like intimidate venues into using Ticketmaster. So what happens is Live Nation is like a management promotion, artist representation sort of uh, separate company that merged with Ticketmaster that works with venues. And so Live Nation works with artists and then Ticketmaster works with venues. But essentially like what seems to have happened is that because you want these high status artists that are represented by Live Nation, you need to be in good standing as a venue with Ticketmaster. And so even though they're working kind of parallel to one another, there's a lot of crossover. And so in 2019, they were found to have violated that agreement six times and they'd threatened venues to use Ticketmaster essentially by saying, we'll withhold our artists. And they settled with the DOJ pretty quickly and agreed to um, harsher future penalties and also extending that agreement that was supposed to end in 2020 to 2025. So they're still held under it. Um, but essentially, that's the background. And so there have been multiple chances to be stricter with them. And they were they seem to have gotten off pretty easy with their settlement. Yeah, it, that's what it sounds like. And I think anybody who interacts with Ticketmaster a lot knows that this is just a crappy service. And essentially, it's not illegal to be a monopoly in the United mm -hmm. States. It is illegal to use your monopoly to degrade the quality of the experience yeah. of the consumer and raise their prices, both of which have happened with Ticketmaster. Ticketmaster is underinvested in the reliability of its service for users, and they can blame Taylor Swift all they want. But how does that explain my Jets bills experience, which is the thing that's happened to multiple times right yeah. that's a fixed amount what of is, tickets was that like a like a system error yeah well who knows they wouldn't they okay. still haven't gotten back to yeah. me so i have multiple emails that i've emailed them yeah. about this and so and and if you ever just look at ticketmaster twitter it's just not i know that you know united air america everybody complains about stuff mm -hmm. but i've never quite had the experiences i've had with ticketmaster with anybody else mm -hmm. but also it's the prices too right this is where monopolies get in trouble Ticketmaster charges insane fees, and they're part of a larger superstructure of brokers and other groups like SeatGeek and StubHub that all charge tons of fees. Sometimes the fees are as much as the face value of the ticket. Sometimes they're way more. Like John yeah. Oliver did a segment where there were some cases at 7,000% markup uh, from the original. So ticket. this is not just Ticketmaster. This is also its competitors as well, though. Well, it's the 
I don't fully life. understand the connection, but from what I understand, it's all related. And when Ticketmaster's CEO uh, testified before Congress, he basically admitted that Ticketmaster is doing the dirty, not basically, he basically said, he said almost literally that Ticketmaster is doing the dirty work for a bunch of other people who are profiting off of Ticketmaster's dominance. Ticketmaster was set up as a system where they took the heat for everybody. In that service charge are the credit card fees, the rebates to the buildings, rebates sometimes to artists, sometimes rebates to promoters. So Ticketmaster's been that, you know, we're like the IRS, we deliver bad news. First of all, like there's some candor going on, but it's bullshit. He's saying like fees for the artists, isn't that what the concert ticket is? Like he's talking about brokers. Why do you need brokers for a Taylor Swift concert? Why do you need brokers for a Jets Bills game? These are things that have I don't know demand, that that's something you know? that Ticketmaster can necessarily fix. The fact that all of these like bureaucratic systems have arisen around this, but having like an itemized fee list right. would probably be helpful in it, terms of transparency. It's like the hospital though. debate we had before, right? It's like these are people are claiming, oh, I'm I'm charging you like remember we we're talking about the yeah. cotton swabs in hospital or wherever. They hide behind the sense that, oh, I'm I'm like passing this on. But it's like yeah. that's what the ticket to the concert is and and the inflation like uh, the, the cost of going to a concert has dramatically outpaced inflation. Yeah. Uh, this is some of the the most inflated uh, like experiences that people can have in America and the fact that they control 70%. It's so obvious, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that there there's something to be said about the fact that other competitors also have the fees. So whether breaking up like these two companies would fix that or also whether that would even mean that the other companies would get a share of what Ticketmaster is getting is kind of debatable. Um, and also the degree to which they're actually always intertwined is um, I think sometimes overstated in the case for breaking them up. Like for example, Taylor Swift was not um, represented by Live Nation in this specific interaction. And so even if they were split up, would this same thing potentially happen? I'm not sure. Um, so I think it's a little more complex than there's just this one bad guy. I think there's maybe it's more analogous to like the airline system where they all say, well, we can charge you more money for your checked bags if we all do it at the same time sort of thing. So I'm not sure how much actually going after them with the antitrust agreement or disentangling these two companies would actually solve the problem. I'm a little skeptical, but there's certainly a problem. Well, I think we're going to get some answers soon. The Department of Justice, uh, the New York Times is reporting that they're in recent months have been contacting music venues and players in the ticket market asking for evidence of whether uh, Ticketmaster and Live Nation have mm -hmm. been intimidating people into moving with their service. And going back to the 90s, I remember Pearl Jam, you know, they, they, they tried to mildly try to push back against Ticketmaster and go their own way and basically mm -hmm. said they'd be paying like they'd be playing ski resorts or something if they didn't go with Ticketmaster. So this was yeah. Ticketmaster was dominant way back then. Yeah. They're still dominant now. And so we're going to get some answers on that. I think the other question is we haven't seen the kind of innovation in the space that we need. Like yeah, and true. you start to think about what's the biggest problem within tickets right now? It's the fact that brokers are snatching up so many of these tickets and the bots are snapping, yeah. snatching up so many tickets and they're getting around like the whole verification systems. Like we've all seen it, like what's the stop, the traffic light or, you know, you know, what's the bicycle in this picture or whatever, whatever these things are to try to get, you know, away from bots, they're not working. And even you, you don't even need bots. You can just have an army of people who all snatch up the tickets, the resale market. And this, you're talking about those, the resale costs on this Taylor Swift. This is like a hugely profitable business. Yeah. So if I were, but I wonder like, has there ever been a solution to that? Because, you know, at, at the flip side of that coin is that 
these online services are democratizing this and it's not about like can can you afford to spend the whole day online waiting in a physical queue like you can actually just log on to your computer and get a chance at getting the original sale level and also if Ticketmaster, which in, has invested hundreds of millions of dollars into their digital infrastructure, it might not be enough, certainly. Yep. But if Ticketmaster can't handle this unprecedented 3.5 billion people trying to get into their systems, then who can? I'm not really sure. Like, I, I think the answer is not totally clean cut. I, I think it's more complex. But also, I just, I'm not convinced that pulling these two companies apart is going to fix it because they've had 80% of major primary ticketing since 1995, which is before they even merged. Which, how did they, so, how they've survived as a as a monopoly this long is baffling to me. But I, I think about it more from a mechanistic perspective, like, like incentives, right? Follow the mm -hmm. incentives. If you are, if you control seventy percent of the market and you have venues, and so you basically can intimidate people into using this service, which is the allegation that seems to have some yeah, merit. Definitely. Then if if you're, if you're in a meeting and you're like, do we devote more money to, you know, a better website, better infrastructure? Yeah, that's hundred percent true. And they're like, well, there's no urgency because if the if the thing collapses, there's still nobody for everybody to go to, right? There's like this these little players, but. You know, when you're seventy percent and you own the venues, there's you have so much power over whether people can go to those players or not. So there's just no urgency to make the system better. Mm -hmm. One thing I would think about if I were them, and this is mimicked in some ways in professional sports like like football, for example, that probably still use Ticketmaster, but they have things like seat licenses, season tickets. Anytime there's a recurring event, you can you can award tickets to loyal fans who are gonna show up to the games and not resell them in mass, right? They may yeah. resell them to their cousin or whatever, but they're one-off players. And you can't buy season tickets in mass in a lot of places. Another thing I would do is you could set up a system where in a system that you buy tickets, you can track over time who buys a ticket and goes to the game using their same account versus some who buys a ticket and resells them. And you could have a system that over time you could build up like a fan loyalty score where you your score increases almost like a credit mm -hmm. score over time as you buy tickets and use them for the events now and it could take yeah. into account like credit scores are like this too like you can have one-off events where you you had to sell your ticket because you were sick or something but over time if you have a 90 percent record of going to the events you buy your tickets or whatever you should be at the front of the line to buy those tickets yeah you know yeah definitely or even i mean taylor swift was um assured multiple times that they could handle this um and i think you know with a, something like this going forward you could have multiple like days where tickets are sold and stagger right. people out more because i i mean i think uh, even just the public scrutiny, if the government doesn't get involved, is going to push some degree of innovation on the part of Ticketmaster here, potentially, in my opinion, more than just the investigation itself, because people are really pissed. And mm -hmm. this isn't, it's not like an airline where you can be really pissed. Like I was really annoyed that I had to pay $125 to have my cat under my seat where my purse would be on the way back from LA. But like, I don't have a choice um, versus somebody could protest Ticketmaster because you don't have to go to this or that. And so I think the market backlash will probably do enough to at least fix something like this from happening again. The airline is a great metaphor, by the way, because imagine if United Airlines had 70% of 
uh, flight routes. Well, in I this think country. they've they've kind of they have like a group monopoly where they've all just decided to raise prices in in unison. But it, but if it's that bad like, with with a group know, that's probably I'm six saying, players, I think the, what is it like? If no, it's just I, I'm not one, disagreeing. You know? But I think that there is a difference in the degree of how essential airlines are as right. a service. Look, you just clearly don't love Taylor Swift enough. For some people, it's clearly essential. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I met her a while ago. I met her when I was like 11, and she's very nice to me. I just don't like crowds, and I've been to like one concert, which is my first concert, One Direction, and since then, too many people. I once saw her <laughs> and Jake Gyllenhaal on a date together, and I didn't yeah. know I was when I was living in Nashville because you used to see her around a lot back in the day in Nashville, and I didn't know the gossip. So I was, it was like a time when you'd post on Facebook. So I posted a photo of them on Facebook because they were sitting next to me in this coffee shop in Nashville. And I've never gotten more engagement in my life on social yeah. media. Huh, people were very peak. interested in it. That was it. Interesting. Was it. I've met both of them. Uh, I didn't know, I don't even know who he was at the time. Well, let's move on to another story. There's a ton of just chatter right now around this Washington Post piece that Bryce Ward put out a couple days ago that looks at census data that seems to show a staggering increase in isolation in the United States uh, over the past few decades. Um, well, so I think before we even do that, we should parse out that there's a difference between isolation and loneliness, which isolation is an objective measure and loneliness is subjective. And so I think that there's been a lot of conflation in the media um, coverage of some of this data and saying like, oh, because people are more isolated, they're more lonely or one is triggering the other. There's certainly a, a strong correlation, but it's not a perfect causation. But essentially, during the pandemic, um, there were huge dips in the amount of time that people spend with one another, um, a 58% drop in how much time they spend with their friends among 15 to 19 year olds, which is a really critical time to be socializing when you're in high school, early college. The drop was 64%, which I think probably will have the most out like most lasting impact going forward rather than adults that were a little more isolated for a while. Um, and it seems as though people did not transfer this time that was lost with friends to spending time with their loved ones or family or neighbors or people around them. Like this was time that was spent alone. And so there's an unprecedented amount of time that people are just completely on their own. And it, it holds up for men and women, white and non-white people, rich and poor people, urban, rural, married, unmarried, parents, childless. Like it's just across the board. So there's a, a sudden uptick in the amount of time that people are just in their solitude and and to a degree choosing to do so which might be because you kind of get sick of the people that you're living with in lockdown mm -hmm. and so you might rather be alone but it's not just a but, lockdown phenomenon yeah, so the, the data also shows a pretty dramatic increase in loneliness uh starting around 2014. Mm -hmm. so it went from the average time people americans spent with friends was stable for a period of time at around six and a half hours but starting around 2014 which incidentally is the exact year that the iPhone reached 50% yep. market penetration. From then to 2019, it dropped from six and a half hours per week with friends to four hours. Then mm -hmm. in the pandemic, it dropped even more. And, yeah. and so it, it seems like something was going on before this. 100% social media. You think it's social media? Absolutely. I know you've, you've done a lot of work on this and I think you're writing yeah. a book that at least is gonna touch on this issue, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I mean, I think 100% because we see 
digital interactions with people as a proxy for actual interactions or even not direct interactions, but watching a video with some, of someone might like trigger this surface level feeling that we're socializing, but underneath, like clearly we're not. Right. And I think especially with young people, obvious that social media is more alluring to them. It's more addictive to them. They're spending unprecedented amounts of time glued to a screen and much less time with their friends as a result. And I think that's a large driver of the coterminous spikes in depression, anxiety, which is not just a subjective measure because we also had at the same time spikes in self-harm and suicide hospitalizations. So it's actually an increase in measurable negative outcomes for young people at this period of time. And I think it's penetrating older and older and older populations and potentially the pandemic just increased our dependence on 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 social media on like devices more mm -hmm. generally and so i think this is like a perfect formula for just disaster in terms of mental health and even physical health because loneliness even before like iphones and that even made it worse was already known to be a contributor to poor health outcomes yeah and i listened to an interview that uh, bryce ward i think it was bryce ward the the new york the guy who wrote the washington post article had mm -hmm. with Derek Thompson this morning where he was like, yeah, it's, it seems like social media is playing a part, but he was like, there's, there's gotta be more. And for whatever reason more. for his analysis, I think part of it could be the, the quality of streaming services, just the amount of things that are available. Video games are way better than, than they were when I was a kid. Institutions seem to be decaying, whether it's churches, community yeah, centers, definitely. other just like strong ties that people have with each other seem to be as low as they've ever been before. People just don't trust institutions. They don't use them. Like when I was a kid, we not only hung out a lot because we didn't have all these tools to, to communicate via social media. We also had the Catholic Youth League basketball, you know, Holy Family was right down the street from me. We'd all go there on a Friday night. We'd play basketball. We'd hang out in the back. We'd go to the woods and drink. Like, we would just kind of hang out with each other. And it seems yeah. like kids in particular are facing a more dramatic impact from this, not, because, not out of sheer percentage. The way I understand the data, the percentage is, you know, they, they vary by age group, but everybody's getting hit hard. Mm -hmm. But... When you see a certain percentage drop among kids, that doesn't tell the whole story because the sheer t amount of time that kids spend hanging out with their friends is so much bigger than other groups. Yeah. So when you see a 10% decline or 20% decline or 50% decline amongst kids, that actually equates to a lot of hours and a dramatic change in the way that kids are growing up right now. Yeah, definitely. And I think the most fundamental changes too, because those are the formative years where you like learn the importance of interpersonal connection and you learn how to navigate relationships. And I, I think the long-term impacts of lockdowns and isolation with young people, even if it's not a measurable sense that I am more lonely in some instances, like sometimes those polling numbers kind of hold steady. Generally, Gen Z is the lon loneliest generation generation though and that has been the case from before the pandemic which seems paradoxical because they're the most connected digitally but clearly that's not an adequate substitute I mean I think we're not even going to fully understand the long-term impacts of this especially because isolation and living alone and loneliness all contribute to poor mental health outcomes and poor physical health outcomes including um, according to the CDC a risk of premature death that could be equivalent to smoking obesity or physical inactivity a 50% increase in dementia, a 29% increase in heart disease, and a 35% increase in stroke. So this is like shocking to me personally, but um, it's possible that stress could be affecting immunity, sleep, inflammation, a combination of them, and just contributing to poor long-term outcomes. So I think that even though 
like loneliness and isolation are not a perfect pair, there's certainly a strong correlation and it's worth looking into. Yeah, and just to put a number to it from uh, the early 2010s to 2021, American teenagers are spending 11 fewer hours with their friends, 11 fewer hours per week than they used to. So that's a lot. But this question of loneliness and solitude is complicated, right? There is this, and we'll link to the show notes, Peter Atia, Dr. Peter Atia did a write-up on this in which he showed, at least through some of these studies, that self-reported loneliness, because loneliness is so hard to measure, is comparable right now than to people born in the mid-1900s, for example. And he cites a bunch of data that shows that in certain cases, being uh, in solitude can be good for your health, especially depending on what age that you're in. So that he has two longitudinal survey studies that examined older adults uh, between 2005 and 2016. And this shows that loneliness decreases with age through 170s before increasing after age 75. So basically, to translate, you're you're actually becoming less lonely throughout your life as you get older, right? Mm-hmm. So this, this confirms what you're saying about younger people and Gen Z. But there's also this, I would say, this myth out there that older people are the most lonely. It's, it's true of certain older people, 75 and up, and Atiyah thinks this has to do with two things. And these are not people glued to their smartphones as much. Now, I know that we all mm-hmm. have grandparents who are spending too much time on the internet, but I don't think that explains this phenomenon. The way Atiyah sees it is there's two things going on. One is decline in health. From 75 on, you're dealing with much more severe health issues. And two is you're actually losing your friends to death. Yeah. So like I these very strong really ties you have. Yeah. And then you couple that with the fact that we suck at taking care of our elderly in this country. We stick them in nursing homes. We don't have these communal ties with each other, which gets back to the institutions. I think there's a symmetry between the way that uh, the very old and the very young are missing something in society. And if you spend time in more communal societies, whether it's India or Ghana, where I've spent a lot of time, or even certain sections of the United States. Like for Mm -hmm. instance, some of this data is less stark in certain immigrant populations, for example, including Asian immigrants. Because they're more communal, they keep their family members around more, they have a stronger tradition of respect for the elderly and cross-generational bonds. These are, when we start to think about solutions, I think this is where we need to start. Yeah, definitely. And also to add to the 75 plus thing, that dramatically increases the likelihood that you lost a spouse or someone that lives in your household that's really important to you. But I would say like by and large, the nuance between isolation and loneliness is isolation is like an objective measure versus loneliness is the difference between how much you'd like to be socializing and how much you actually are. And the former is very like variable depending on the person. And so I think that's why the the pandemic impacted people to varying degrees. I know like I'm super introverted and I can be by myself for days at a time and be totally fine. And during the pandemic, when I didn't have a roommate for the first time, I was like, I think I'm feeling the sensation of loneliness. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I've ever felt that before because going to school or going to work always has been enough for me socially. But I would say that like, because it's so variable, yes, the measurable differences are maybe not as stark in terms of actual perceived loneliness. But I would say that it's especially concerning that young people are acutely feeling that way from very early ages and increasingly so over time. I think that's um, in terms of their, their personal health, in terms of just the importance of interpersonal connection and having people that you can depend on that aren't just social media friends or video game friends is is just i can't even imagine what that's going to do long term to a generation that grew up that way yeah and people listening might be like what do you do about this because i think a lot of our listeners are dealing with this in mm-hmm. some way shape or form 
I think there are a couple of things I, I just think about. I think one is you start with the people you have the strongest ties to. And I think you, you have to ask yourself, do I have rituals, routines with the people that I care about? Do you have that Sunday dinner that you hold sacred? Do you go for walks with your friends at regular times? Things that you know you could look forward to that you hold mm -hmm. sacred so that you don't look back and say, all right, six months has gone by and I haven't seen my friend, my sister, my brother, et cetera. So I think that's one thing. I think two is to the extent you have the ability to make choices, don't just make choices about money and convenience, make choices about proximity to the people you care mostly about. So a good example for me is, I love living here in this particular neighborhood of Manhattan. And I recently had to make a choice about where I was gonna buy an apartment. And obviously there are cost considerations and everything like that. Most of my friends live in the like walking distance to each other in Brooklyn. I decided I was gonna move there because these are the people I see all the time. And I like, if I can, if it makes it that much easier, like walk down the street and see them, then that to me was worth it. Even though it's cooler, this neighborhood, like I, this neighborhood, mm -hmm. like I'm, I'm not exactly like the stroller pushing Brooklynite type, but to me, it's worth it to, to be able to walk down the street and just sit on my friend's stoop and have a conversation, you know? Yeah, definitely. And I think parenting is a huge aspect of this as well, just raising a generation to, now that we do have these statistics and we do know the adverse impacts of being totally digital as a young person growing up, like raising a the sub-generation of younger Gen Z to like reaffirm the importance of interpersonal connection and family dinners and doing those really basic fundamental things is so important. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I also think like for people who have the ability, this is where you need to take risks, right? If you're, if you're moving to a new city or you've just found that your friends have moved on for one reason or other or disappeared or moved to a different place, or you just want new friends, you got to take risks, start new hobbies, show up to clubs, mm -hmm. play organized sports. Like you have to show up and take risks to meet new people. Yeah. Uh, you also have to just take risks in personal interactions. You have to put your phone away, ask people's names, right? You might have noticed if you walk around this neighborhood, I try to learn everybody's name in the coffee shop or that I go to and I try to go to the same coffee shop repeatedly and talk to the same people because even those loose ties make your life better because then you're like, mm -hmm. oh, I'm at Charlie Street and I know that, you know, I know the barista, I know the owner and I, I can have a, a long, an ongoing conversation with that person as opposed yeah. to like, I need to go to the new, you know, Chilean fusion Asian co coffee shop that opened up five blocks away because I want to tweet about it like versus, hey, I just want to see the same person every day yeah. and I want to develop a routine around that. Yeah, definitely. And one last final thing that I think adds a little bit of nuance to the fact that social media is not all bad is I think people are connecting in person now and using it more mindfully in some examples like I have friends that have done this thing called like city girls who walk which I haven't done but hmm. like literally like 15,000 girls have shown up to go it started with like a couple of them on TikTok they go for walks on like the west side highway just because a lot of young women who move to the city find it isolating which I thought was like actually a kind of heartening use of social media of like young people who just moved here it's a pandemic it's hard to meet people and there's literally tens of thousands of them that do it now it's like the passeggiata if you if you know about the Italian tradition it's like old men basically show up to a piazza and they just walk around extremely slowly and talk to each other it's quite a tradition <laughs> interesting well speaking of slow Italians let's welcome on Joe Garvey <laughs> hey this is Ricky you've reached the last debate if you have some feedback for us leave it after the town Joe was on our podcast Last episode, I guess, we've gotten some voicemails about him and about other things. And so we're going to bring him on here to walk us through a series of voicemails that we've gotten. 
How's it going, guys? <laughs> you can't see Joe, but he's kneeling next to a microphone. Joe, walk us through these voicemails. Uh, where are we going to start? Hi, um, my name is Emily. I'm calling from North Carolina. I love listening to your show. I think I've been listening almost since the beginning, and it's, it's definitely my favorite in my podcast feed. I get really excited when I see a new one. Um, I want to thank you for what you do. I never thought I would call because I don't feel like I have much expertise on uh, most most political issues. But um, but then you had Joe on your show with his dating life. I was just pulling my hair out listening to him because, like, of course, dates can be free or at least cheap. And I just first I thought of the Highline Trail, um, which is just such a cool place to walk or a picnic in Central Park, and you don't even need a lot of food, just like a baguette and cheese. So good luck. I love that you did that segment. Um, my thinking was um, more of that, but maybe not Joe every time, no offense. Um, it would just be, it would be nice to hear all different people. So um, again, thanks for all you do, and um, I'll keep listening. Bye-bye. Yes, yeah, so thank you, Emily, from North Carolina. You'll actually be happy to know that this evening, I have a date, a free date, in Bryant Park <laughs> for uh, watching a skate show. Does she know about this yet? Oh, no, of course not. Yeah, okay. we can't let her know. Okay. okay, you're just digging your hole deeper for when she does find out. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Okay, so Bryant Park, and what, are you going to go skating? Yeah, no, we're going to see a skate show. Okay, great. Yeah, the only issue is that while it's getting colder in New York, there are fewer things to do outside. Yep. So I'm running out of options. It's more romantic, though. This is the most romantic time of year. Maybe late fall, but I guess this is technically late fall, but you know what I mean, like a little yeah. warmer fall. Mm. But yeah. this is a nice time of year to do an outdoor date. Yeah, you know, I, I asked a friend recently, describe to me your ideal date. And she said, it doesn't have to do with what we're doing. It has to do with the person, if we connect for with the sure. person, which that yeah. gave me a lot of reassurance. Yeah, for sure. I have yeah. a question. I have a question. Are you not saying what the show is on purpose? What is the show? The, the skate show? show? Oh, I, I That I was don't Michael, know. by the way, our other producer. I, I honestly don't know. She's the one who invited me to the skate show, so I think oh, she's so getting the Oh, so you didn't even hints. do the homework. No, no, yeah, no. you can't so take credit for this. So you're taking credit for this. She's yeah, getting no. the hints. I need, for the purposes of this podcast and for your personal growth, we need you to take <laughs> one of these ideas, either from us or from this listener. One thought I had was, taking a going on a date with a woman and surreptitiously walking up to a comedy show and me performing and not telling her yeah you can't be too show-offy you know? really yeah that's like taking a woman to a trivia show if you're like a trivia nerd and being like oh i know all the answers this is boring but it is charming but i think you have to wait long enough and yeah. it's only good if you don't brag about your comedy between then and there you have to it has to be a total surprise well that's the point it would be it would be a total surprise you yeah. you don't think it's a good idea Ricky? wait when are you doing this like now no like it's the... just like a fantasy i have of like yeah, the best date okay, imaginable sure. that's that's fine do that okay yeah. that i'm planning on doing well thank you okay. for the uh but not like a early date that that would yeah. be really weird well i was planning on it being the first date okay then do that the sure. thing is I'd at some point she's gonna know you planned it so that's where you have to make it. Oh, really she's definitely going to know that he planned yeah. it, no matter what. Yeah, yeah at the end I of think it. Everyone will. So that's why I have to yeah. put on a good performance. She just has to be sold on like the whole package deal by then. Yes. Well, in all seriousness, we have also been getting some substantive voicemails. Lord knows why we aren't playing those, but our number is three two one two zero 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 five seven zero. But we promise, uh, we love to hear from you, 
and whether it's about Joe's dating life or the segments that we've done or ideas for other segments or questions you have or just general feedback. Like we love it. Like we sometimes in our, our uh, morning standup meetings, we play some of the voicemails you send us just as a rah-rah to our staff that works really hard to make this podcast. So if you are a fan of the show, please go on wherever you get your podcasts. Give us that five-star rating. Uh, describe why you like this podcast because it's really important for us to reach more people like you know nuance is hard to cut through in this age of polarization misinformation so the more of you out there talking about the work we do the better it is for all of us and we'll be right back here on thursday same place same time Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks, research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra, studio support and video editing by Moyo Adeolu, editing and sound design by Joe Engelbrecht and Monica Espedia. 